You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Closed show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. O Canada went O Cannabis. Green Day finally came this week as Canada became the first G7 country to legalize recreational marijuana nationwide. People lined up for their first legal taste and even held so-called smokeouts. So we talked about the milestone with a top executive at the world's largest cannabis company, Tilray CEO Brendan Kennedy. Brendan told us why he thought as many as five countries could soon follow Canada's lead over the next couple of years. We started by asking him how he wants his customers to think about cannabis today. I think today we're seeing the end of a 95-year experiment in regards to prohibition, and we're seeing the start of a a new era where Canada is the first G7 nation to legalize cannabis for adult use. Uh, I think Canadians should be proud, uh, and the eyes eyes of the world are on Canada uh, as other countries around the world look to uh, see how this uh, experiment uh, takes place in Canada. Uh, you said earlier that you thought another country would, within a year or two, swing to also making it legal. Who, who would be the next candidate? I think that there, I think we'll see country three, four, five uh, over the next two to three years. I think it's a country, um, I've been doing this for eight years, and over the last eight years, I've seen us go from 15 countries in the world that had legalized medical cannabis to about 35. Uh, it's really clear to me how we go from 35 to 40 to 50 to 60 over the next really over the next three years. Uh, If I had to predict a country uh, that would be country number three, it's definitely a country that has already legalized medical cannabis. Uh, And I think we'll see a country pass a law based on the the laws and the regulatory framework here in Canada in the next 12 months. Now, talk to me a little bit about the addressable markets here, because that's something I'm confused about. Is this just sort of moving people out of iniquity, or is there a bigger market here in terms of actually bringing in new customers? And if that is the case, how do you get to them? I think, there's, I think there's really three, three different markets that we're talking about. We're talking about a total addressable market of patients who are using cannabis as a substitute for prescription drugs and prescription painkillers, primarily opioids. Uh, and we're seeing that, that global growth of that market uh, around the world. I think the second market is especially important in Canada. 
is a, a roughly $6 billion illegal illicit market in Canada that needs to transition to uh, a legalized, regulated, uh, taxed, safer product. Uh, and I think the third category uh, is consumers, um, consumers who uh, may consume alcohol today. Uh, that's certainly what we're seeing in some U.S. states where consumers uh, are using cannabis as a substitute for alcohol. And that's what clearly has companies like Constellation scared about in terms of this industry. I will get onto the financials in a moment, but I just want to bring up something that's actually on the, the website of Privateer Holdings, which is the biggest shareholder in the company. You're also the CEO there, where you talk about once this becomes legal, generating enormous both financial and social returns. Can you talk to us a bit about those social returns and what they are? So I think there's, there's a number of social returns. If we look at prohibition and the harms caused by prohibition, they are numerous. A lot of our investors from around the world are interested in ending the harms caused by prohibition. So it includes um, drug war violence in uh, Latin America and South America and, and in the U.S. It includes mass incarceration of uh, predominantly, disproportionately, African Americans and Hispanic Americans. It it includes cannabis uh, being treating cannabis as a as a criminal issue uh, rather than more appropriately. And and so those are some of the some of the harms. It also means that people in the U.S. and people who access illicit cannabis don't have access to a legal, safe, tested, branded product. Um, many of them have to consume consume a product that may be contaminated. Brendan, let, let me just jump in on that because you're saying safe, tested, branded, but at the same time we have Health Canada coming out today and saying that this could p- potentially cause a problem in one in three adults and addiction in one in ten. So that doesn't really seem to fit with what you're saying. I think incident I think incident rates in in Canada across provinces uh, seem to be somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent. I think that there's already a a six billion dollar illicit market in Canada today. So there's already six billion dollars worth of cannabis uh, being consumed in Canada, and that product is it's unsafe, it's unregulated, it's untested. Uh, it may have mold, mildew, fungus, heavy metals, pesticides, and so as of today. Canadians have a, have a right to access a safer, tested products. And I think there are benefits, social benefits to that. You talk about the size of market, black market there, $6 billion, you overall say. I'm looking at your own market capitalization, $13 billion in excess of. How do you go about building moats around what you have built at Tilray, ensuring that you are ahead of the competition, innovating ahead of the competition? So today we launched five brands across provinces from coast to coast in Canada. Currently, Tilray products are available in 11 countries on five continents. We expect to continue to expand to additional countries on a, on a regular basis here over the coming years. This is a, it's a global growth opportunity. It's why you're seeing CPG companies and alcohol companies, functional food and beverage companies, pharmaceutical companies uh, desire to enter this space because they're, they're hunting for global growth. Uh, at a time where there's just not a lot of global growth. This is a, it's 150 to $200 billion. It will be 150 to $200 billion opportunity over the long term. And I expect you'll see multiple $100 billion market cap companies in this space in the coming years. 
I want to talk about the stock, uh, Brendan. You IPO'd at $17 back in July. You got to almost $300 a share back in September. You've come way down. Uh, you're now on a two-day losing streak as Canada legalizes marijuana use for recreational purposes. What do you think of the stock movement overall? And how would you say that investors should value a company like Tilray? Should they compare it to a tobacco company, a healthcare company, a consumer discretionary company? I think there's elements of all three, and I think that's I think that's what uh, is being reflected in in the value. This the cannabis industry is disrupting the pharmaceutical industry. It's disrupting the alcohol industry. It's disrupting the the functional food and beverage industry, and to some extent the tobacco industry. Uh, and we're seeing you know companies from those industries are looking for partners in in this space. From the IPO, the stock is up 800 percent. The thesis behind the IPO was that we had long-only blue-chip U.S.-based mutual funds who wanted a company to list on a U.S. exchange. They wanted a cannabis company to be regulated by the SEC and to report in U.S. GAAP financials. And we knew there would be interest in a company that did that. And so when we became the first company to, first cannabis company to IPO on a U.S. exchange, we were optimistic about the, the investor interest. But even we've been surprised by not only interest from investors in the U.S., but around the world in this global growth opportunity. Brendan, you're talking about this, as you say, incredible run-up in the stock value. I think today you trade about 90 times 2019 Revenue, that's a growth stock, right? That doesn't behave like a normal CPG stock or a pharmaceutical stock, any that I can think of. What I want to know is that's all based on the anticipation in the market of how this company is going to perform. How do you take it to, if you like, phase two? How do you actually get out to the customers? Are you going to do sponsorship? Is it going to be a big advertising push? What's the play? All of the, all of the above. Um, so we've, you know, historically we've doubled revenue year over year, and, and we will triple our uh, employee uh, base this year. We started the year at 250 employees. We'll finish it with 750 employees. We're at, in a in a moment of global growth, uh, not only here in Canada but around the world. And so we need to continue to keep our foot on the accelerator, not only as our revenues grow here in Canada, but as they grow in other. Uh, medical cannabis countries around the world. Um, we we have partnerships with uh, some online digital companies to uh, help us identify potential customers and and get the word out there around our brands. And, and there are also opportunities to do in-store events to build brand awareness. Well, speaking of partnerships, we know that food and beverage companies have been tripping all over themselves trying to get a piece of the cannabis action, whether it's Constellation Brands or a company like Coca-Cola. What's the one risk that they are underestimating when investing? in this space? Timing is probably the biggest risk. You know, I've been in this industry for, for eight years, and eight years ago, we predicted that country after country around the world would legalize medical cannabis, and we predicted that state after state, country after country would legalize medical cannabis. We knew what was going to happen. We didn't necessarily know when it was going to happen. If I were a global Fortune 500 company looking at this industry, I would, I would feel more confident today because of 35 countries that have legalized medically, and, and now two uh, as of today. Today, two countries, Uruguay and Canada, that have legalized for adult use. I think timing is, is the biggest risk. I believe we'll see countries three, four, and five in the next two years, but that's the big unknown. But we know that other countries are looking at this regulatory framework being established here in Canada, and they're, they're looking to implement a similar system. Then we dove into the technical side of the cannabis industry with Vivian Azer, Senior Research Analyst at Cowan & Company. 
Vivian discussed pot stock valuations, volatility, and opportunities in the space, particularly for more traditional consumer companies to jump on the cannabis bandwagon. We asked her if we're going to keep seeing more deals like Constellation's $3.8 billion bet on marijuana. I do think that you'll see um, more deals as traditional CPG companies, um, you know, start to dipping their toe in um, to the cannabis market. Constellation Brands, you know, obviously started with a smaller investment last October, and then they wrote a four billion dollar check uh, in August. Um, Constellation, you know, their motivation is a little bit different than some of their peers. They are the best in class beer company in the U.S. with fast growing brands like Corona and Modelo, um, but they also are smaller and more agile, which is why I think they were first to market. Uh, we've seen. Their competitor, Molson Coors, do a joint venture uh, with the company Hexo. Um, their beer business is a little bit more challenged, so we view that as a little bit more defensive. Now, I know it's hard to react to very new breaking news, but the fact that we've got a new incoming CEO to Constellation, Bill Newlands, is the first outsider to ever run the company, so say Wall Street Journal. What do you make of a new leadership of Constellation Brands, this company you cover? So Bill Newlands is, uh, was the heir apparent um, as CEO. Uh, he joined the company uh, from Beam uh, Suntory, um, or Suntory Global, he, Beam Global. Um, he joined as the chief uh, growth officer, mm-hmm. then he got promoted to COO, and then to president. So this was expected. Uh, okay, well, so that's good. When we talk about... Uh, what's been going on in the cannabis space. Most of the talk has been about recreational use, people going out drinking cannabis drinks or smoking joints. But a lot of the market uh, potential, at least in terms of what analysts are saying, is more in medical. And why is that not getting a little bit more attention in, in, in all of this? Certainly, that's something we've been trying to, to draw to investors' attention. Um, you know, we've uh, been focused on that, in particular in Europe, where the dominoes seem to be falling faster and faster. The United Kingdom, for instance, is mm-hmm. going to have legal medical cannabis on November 1st, and that was really quite a dramatic pivot um, relative to even six months ago. Um, you know, the reason I think that people aren't focused on it is because obviously we've got an exciting catalyst, and yeah. you can see people lined up, you know, outside of the stores. So it's, it's less a- sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to do a lot more clinical research, um, but that's what these large, well-capitalized companies in Canada are capable of doing now. You've got companies like Canopy Growth that by the end of the year will have 15 human clinical trials up and running. Tilray has multiple clinical trials, and they're happening all over the globe, and they're focused on really tough conditions mm. like epilepsy and PTSD and um, oncology-related um, symptoms. I, I'm interested in the fact that you've got outperform on both Canopy and indeed Tilray. The optimism that you have baked into these companies, how can they sustain the edge they have? They've got into the market first, but if we do see more countries starting to legalize, why would all the best and the and the greatest and the first just remain? Why would innovation remain in Canada? Well, because they've got such a good head start, um, both in terms of the research and development um, that they're doing um, for you know defensible IP around medical applications, as well as the R&D that they're doing you know, on the adult use side. As well, they've got the scale. And by virtue of that scale, you know, they've been the first to get vetted and approved by governments like Germany. And so you can imagine as you know, an entity goes to a new jurisdiction and says, hey, we've been approved by Canada, we've been approved by Germany, we've got the capacity, that makes for a trusted partner. You've had about 140 companies go public in Canada related to marijuana in the cannabis industry. Wow, is that a lot mean? of them listing, yeah, just over the past four years, a lot of them listing here in the U.S., and you have a lot of ancillary companies uh, on, on the edges. As an analyst, how do you sift through 100-plus companies and decide which one's going to be the winner out of all this when we're so, so, so at such a nascent state? Yeah, and I don't just cover cannabis either. Uh, so uh, we've uh, favored scale. 
um, and best-in-class management teams that bring in real CPG competencies into the organization, which we think creates you know durable competitive advantage. Is there any cannibalization, do you think? The fact that Constellation Brands seems to be worried about what it'll have an effect on alcohol, or is it more that there's a synergy there? Will we start to see tobacco and alcohol get hit and that's where cannabis starts to take over, or can they be symbiotic? Um, so we do view alcohol and cannabis as substitute social lubricants, um, and we think we've seen early evidence of substitution in the U.S. in uh, legal jurisdictions, and we'll see what happens uh, in Canada. Tobacco and cannabis I don't view as substitutes. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. While legalized marijuana went live in Canada, it's a different story here in the U.S., where it's still illegal under federal law. Americans are warming up to the idea of legalization, with more than 60% of adults favoring the change. That's according to Pew Research Center's latest study. But the issue remains sharply divided among certain demographics. Carol Doherty, Pew's director of political research, came on to talk about what they found, and we started by asking who exactly in the U.S. is most in favor of legalizing marijuana. Well, I mean, young people have led the charge on this. Millennials, three-quarters, nearly three-quarters of millennials uh, support legalization. That's the highest of any generation. But all generations have ticked up. And at this point, you have three out of four generations, only the silence really saying no. The, only the oldest Americans are opposed to marijuana legalization. Do people, I mean, it's hard to tell from a static snapshot, but... Will these current, will this current cohort of millennials, when they get older, will they still retain these views? Or do you find in your polling over time that on issues like drug use, people just get more conservative, say, as they have kids and what they may have thought when they were in their young 20s, they become a little more skittish as they get older? Well, it depends on the issue. I think marijuana is somewhat unique, especially when you look at the baby boomers who were the most supportive of marijuana legalization in the late 1960s when they were young. Their support plummeted, and now they've come back to 54% support. So they've done a U-shape sort of pattern, which Mm. is very interesting. And, Carol, what about the breakdown when we look at political allegiances here? Well, you see the Republicans most most opposed, but Republican support has been growing in recent years. Still, on balance, more opposed than support marijuana legalization. Large majority of uh, Democrats support it, as well as independents. Uh, Carol, we know about some of the states uh, that have already sort of pushed to either legalize it recreationally or or medically, uh, like California, Oregon, Mm -hmm. uh, New York, and others. But what states are the holdouts? I mean, where are we not seeing any real movement towards some sort of decriminalization or legalization of marijuana? Well, well, I think you're going to see it mostly in the conservative states, generally reflecting the political patterns. I think you're going to see it in in some parts of the South, notably. I think, you know, elsewhere, we've seen the biggest advances along the West Coast say, I think, you know, again, it's following the political patterns we see in our national data. Uh, what have, now, you obviously at Pew, you've looked at lots of cultural issues over time. I'm sure you've seen the changing trends towards gay marriage, things like mm-hmm. that. Is there a tipping point 
that you found on these issues where when something holds a gets to a certain threshold that the eventual that the um, sort of that the legislative change on a national level just becomes a fait accompli and it's just inevitably going to happen. Well, it's again, I think it varies issue to issue. I think certainly it's it's approaching at this point. I think, you know, given the number of states that have legalized at least medicinal marijuana and you have this conflict between the federal government, and many of the states, I think that the important metric to watch here is opinion among Republicans. It's, it's mm. fairly closely divided now. When you see a majority of Republicans support legalization, I think that may pass the tipping point. Do you have any sense of intensity? So it's one thing for people to say, sure, legalize it. But is this the type of thing that people will care about when, say, deciding between two political candidates? Probably not. I mean, it's, it's not a high salience issue in the same way that health care and the economy are. It could be a marginal issue. But it's, it's, a, it's a fairly important issue in the states. You know, obviously, with the referenda coming in 2018 and the referenda we've already seen, it's an important lo local issue and state issue. Then we turn to another big story this week, Saudi Arabia. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was the man who sold the world on his vision of a Saudi economy that's no longer dependent on oil, with a massive charm offensive earlier this year. But now he may have become the biggest risk to his own project. Washington Post columnist and prominent Saudi critic Jamal Khashoggi is believed dead after entering the kingdom's consulate in Istanbul. Now suddenly toxic and shunned by world leaders and investors alike, the Saudis are turning back on their biggest point of global leverage by wielding oil threats. We talked with Tom Petrie, Petrie Partners chairman, about the power that the kingdom sways over oil markets and prices going forward. It's a particularly fragile time. Even before any of this happened, it was a particularly fragile time uh, for uh, the supply-demand picture. And uh, in that, in part because of the policy the U.S. had taken with Iran and because global growth has, has tightened things up faster than many expected even uh, six to 12 months ago. So against this, that backdrop, this whole discussion of punishment and, and, and second order consequences comes up. Uh, and then we have the, the whole uh, second and third order uh, geostrategic issues. Uh, the what is perceived to be and is quite arguably an existential threat, a series of threats that have been made by Iran uh, to Saudi Arabia and to Israel, uh, two key allies for the U.S. in that part of the world. So that, that's there. But I, I do think we have to keep in mind there's a lot of oil in the world right now, probably plenty. Yeah. OPEC has said this. It's just not in the right place at the right time for the markets. And so there's some upside risk in this. Uh, I think it would be very self-correcting much sooner than any of the predictions of uh, $100 plus oil uh, would suggest. Uh, Tom, talk to me a little bit about the relationship between the Saudis and the U.S. government at this stage, and particularly what type of leverage uh, the Saudis would actually have uh, to sort of retaliate when they're so dependent on the U.S. for things like military aid and arms sales. Well, you know, it, 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 it cuts both ways, and it's clear that the president's comments are such that uh, he doesn't want to lose this ally as, as a customer and as a strategic ally. And, and there's plenty of reason for that, because before any of this happened, already uh, we had seen a balkanization of relationships in that part of the world. There's a closer alliance between China and Russia mm -hmm. with respect to many Middle East matters right now. And uh, 
really our relationship with Saudi Arabia and its key allies, Abu, uh, Abu Dhabi, the uh, uh, United Arab Emirates in general, and Kuwait are all important factors as well. But the linchpin is, is the Saudi relationship. And what's interesting to Remain's point there is that so far, President Trump has really pushed away any of the issues impacting defense negotiations and indeed agreements they already have with Saudi Arabia. The $110 billion deal that they agreed just last year with Saudi Arabia comes to mind. And it doesn't look like that's going to be on the brink in any way because of the worry with what it would mean for Russia, for example. Where do you think the U.S. could impose sanctions, could exert some pressure without forcing perhaps oil prices up too much for Donald Trump's taste? You know, it's hard to say And at this point. I think it really turns on what comes out from the, the Secretary of State's visit. And uh, clearly, if, if, if the report you just gave just before I came on about uh, an expected statement from the Saudis on this, uh, it certainly represents uh, a step toward acknowledging something something's very uh, uh, disturbing happened. And I, how they deal with that, I think, would really have a bearing on what are the range of, of reactions. Much of this is going to turn on, on what Congress might impose on the president. And, then, and, and that would be legislation that might or might not pass, might or might not be uh, uh, acceptable and therefore might be vetoed and not overridden. Yeah. Etc. So it's a, a political speculation right now. And Tom, very quickly, is it right that the oil markets didn't move on it? They they moved initially, but but I think it's fair to say um, they we're in a we're in a zone right now where the reaction in the oil markets has been pretty modest so far. It's waiting for to hear more, and it, it certainly uh, clipped off initially as people came to realize this could cut either way depending on just how it plays out. And, and the other part I want to emphasize yeah. is the self-correcting aspect. If you go from here to 80 or $90 oil, the impact of that on, on global demand growth has to be factored in. That's where it could become self-correcting. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.